As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Andrew Hollenhorst City joins us now, the chief U.S. economist. And Andrew's just been fantastic through the whole of this year. I have to say, Andrew, congrats to you and the whole of the team, because I remember when you first came out with those calls for 50 basis points, every meeting, then 75, and everyone started to laugh, Andrew, and it quickly became consensus. Where are you now going into year end as the rest of the pack on Wall Street talks about a step down and financial conditions start to ease? Yeah, thanks so much, Jonathan, and thanks for having me on. Uh, we're, you know, for our base case, we still think that the Fed might end somewhat below 5% policy rates, but we would not be surprised by levels above 5%. I think anything up to 5.5% would not be too surprising at this point. And, you know, it really goes back and kind of thinking all the way back in terms of why this Fed has been more hawkish and why we're getting higher policy rates. It's what you were just talking about it in the European context. We just have inflation data that continues to surprise to the upside, that continues to push policy rates higher. How do you think the chairman navigates this conversation in the news conference, Andrew, this week, given that they don't have the forecast? There's no fresh SEP until December. It's really difficult. In December, you do have a lot more variables that you can use to try to guide towards a step down in the pace of policy rate increase, but at the same time not trigger a loosening of financial conditions. And I think we saw a little of that last week as the market got excited about the fact that the Fed might be slowing the pace from a 75 basis point hike at this week's meeting to a 50 basis point hike in December. And, and we think that is what's going to happen. And that's not necessarily a dovish outcome. You, the hiking 50 basis points is still a larger than usual sized hike. The Fed could continue to hike at those larger sized hike sizes for an extended period of time, get to higher policy rates. So there's nothing inherently dovish about hiking at a slower pace. What the Fed needs to do is communicate that. And you're right, at the December meeting, there's a summary of economic projections that can show higher dots, suggesting that policy rates will move higher. It's really just going to come down to communication in the press conference at Wednesday's meeting. Ken Powell will talk about slowing down the pace, but still indicate resolve on fighting inflation. What's more damaging for the economy? Getting to 5% or 5.5% and then cutting perhaps six months later, or getting to 4 and 3 quarters percent and holding it for two years straight? I, I think what would be damaging for the economy, and I think to their credit, Fed officials have recognized this, is to allow inflation to persist at levels that are well above target. I mean, you, you were just talking, and 
you know, we're kind of joking about the idea, could we get a 3%, 4%, 5% inflation target? But implicitly, that's what happens if the Fed continues to miss on their inflation mandate. If you continue to miss to the upside on inflation, then you embed in the economy a higher rate of inflation. And I think we're already seeing some of the costs, some of the uncertainty associated with not knowing how much wages, how much prices will be going up. That's the real risk for Fed officials. And, and that's why stopping too early um, is a risk and could imply actually hiking further at a later date. So, so you do have upside risk, you have downside risk. It's a complicated scenario. I think the primary risk right now is still the risk that inflation remains too high. Andrew, you said something really important there, that by basically undershooting inflation again and again, they're basically communicating that inflation is going to remain higher than their target. This sort of speaks to what Diane Swank was talking about, their projections being fantasy land. How much do you think they've already done that by not really communicating some sort of downturn or something that is more realistic, according to The Economist's uh, projections, in terms of what kind of pain needs to happen in this economy to get inflation under control? Yeah, I think it would be helpful if Fed officials concentrated a little bit more on the fact that labor markets likely need to loosen significantly to bring down inflation. It's a very unfortunate reality. It's a reality that nobody wants to be dealing with. But the empirical fact is that to bring inflation down from levels like the levels that we're seeing in the U.S., in Europe, elsewhere – involves a significant loosening of the labor market. And, and that's almost a euphemism for saying the unemployment rate rises. Millions of people who currently have jobs no longer have jobs. That, it's a horrible outcome for the economy. That is the cost of inflation that's too high. And the issue now is minimizing the further cost of that. So I, I think that's right, Lisa. I think there should be more direct communication about the pain that's associated with bringing down inflation. Andrew, I can sense even you're hesitating to say it out loud. And we do too around the programme, around the table on surveillance every single morning. And Andrew, I think they've still got to do a better job of communicating this. And it's not for me to do it for them. Andrew, how do they tell us that higher unemployment is a price worth paying to get inflation down? What's the answer to that? Yeah, it's a very hard message to deliver, frankly. And I think that the answer is to be clear, be forthright, to talk about the historical evidence, talk about the theory. The theory that we have, we look at the employment cost index last week, up 1.2% quarter on quarter. This is well above a pace of wage increase that would be consistent with 2% inflation. And so I think that's just one indication, a very tight labor market that's going to drive inflationary pressure. There's strong theoretical reasons, there's strong empirical reasons to think that that doesn't change without a loosening of the labor market. So I just think that we need to be clear and forthright about that. And, and to your point, Jonathan, it, it is an unfortunate reality. And I think that means that Fed officials and others have been reluctant to comment on it openly. Andrew, we get unemployment data on Friday. We get the jobs report in America. Right now, I'm looking at payrolls. The survey, the median estimate, about 190 from a previous 263. Andrew, can you tell me, as the year has progressed, have you sensed that perhaps this unemployment rate needs to go higher than you thought it did at the start of the year? So I think there is a sense that maybe the unemployment rate doesn't need to go higher, but that the amount of restriction needed in the economy may need to be more 
to get to a higher unemployment rate. So we think that the unemployment rate may need to get to something around five and a half percent to bring down inflation. That would be a lot higher than 3.5 percent where we are now. Um, historically, it wouldn't be as high as what we've seen in other recessions. Um, so there is some good news there if you want to see it that way. Um, I, I think that the, the issue is the labor market data continues to be very resilient. 190,000 new jobs in a month is going to be strong enough to continue to put downward pressure on the unemployment rate. So we have a tight labor market generating wage pressure that's too high. And that labor market looks like it may be tightening further. The only evidence to the contrary, job openings, the JOLTS job openings numbers, those have started to come down. Uh, we get a new reading on that this week. So I think that's going to be important. But overall, low initial jobless claims, there's just a lot of evidence that this is a labor market that has not slowed sufficiently to bring down that wage pressure. Joel Stater coming up tomorrow with the ISM as well, and then onto the Federal Reserve on Wednesday and onto the payrolls report on Friday. What a week. Andrew, thank you, sir. As always, Andrew Hollenhorst there of City on the latest and what they're looking for from this Fed this week. Amrita Sen joins us right now, the Director of Research at Energy Aspects. Amrita, can we start there? Typically, we talk about the near-term story. Let's get out to next year just briefly. How vulnerable is the United States now with the SPR at a four-decade low? I think it's a great question. Um, we've calculated this, and even before Prince Abdulaziz said this last week, uh, we kind of highlighted the fact that right now the SPR is actually being used to... Uh, pretty much influence prices, whereas its objective was very much for supply mitigation. So uh, remember the SPR also has legislative releases that was agreed back in 2017. So that's another 100 million barrels that's going to come out. Uh, we'll end the year this year at just below 400 million barrels, about 380. Deduct another 100 from the legislative releases over the next three years. It doesn't leave the administration with much more than 60 million barrels, we believe, uh, that they could do without running into issues with the IEA's at least requirement to have at least 90 days of uh, net import cover. Now, of course, you can continue to run it down below that number, but I will, con I will say this again and again, that this is a time of energy security and running down SPRs to influence prices is probably not the most prudent strategy. Do you think it leaves America even more exposed to the whims of OPEC next year? If you don't have uh, SPR, or rather, let me rephrase, if you were using SPR to offset um, supply disruptions, that's very different. But if you're using SPR to just keep a, a cap on prices, then yeah, absolutely. Because we've said this uh, before as well, but if you are going to use the SPR to combat OPEC, that's like turning up to a gunfight with a knife, because it's OPEC has millions of barrels per day of production that they could cut or raise, where the SPR is ultimately a finite volume, which also will need to be replenished at some stage. I'm ready to, given the fact that there isn't this relief valve of the SPR that potentially could be tapped in a major way next year, and given the fact that OPEC Plus has that leverage over the U.S. and other nations, are we ever going to see $72 a barrel kind of price levels where this administration said they would like to refill the SPR? We don't think so. No, I mean, if anything, uh, 5th of December, when the EU uh, embargo on Russian crude starts, that's when you're going to see the real supply disruptions kick in because this is about shipping disruptions, right? We're just having to tie up so many ships now to move Russian crude all the way to the east. We will start to see some Russian productions uh, shot in, and that's only going to get worse next year. So we just do not see how we get down to the 70s unless and until the economy really collapses and China 
China doesn't actually start to get better, which we expect should start to happen from April next year. Amrita, based on some of the supply disruptions that you're expecting heading into the winter, and we are getting signs that, you know, it has been mild so far, but the UK, uh, there are just reports that they could see a colder winter than usual. Where could you see oil prices going, and how does that translate to gasoline prices at this highly political moment? I mean, look, we are expecting prices to go towards $100 produce, like, into, into the year end and really trade into the 110s and 120s for most of next year. Uh, and the biggest upside, like you mentioned, is the winter. Of course, weather is always going to be erratic and you know, nobody can really predict weather. Uh, but even otherwise, stocks are just very, very low. Now, you do ask about gasoline. It's a fair question. Gasoline prices in the U.S. have continued to rise because there's so many refineries that are still down. And let's not forget the French strikes that are still ongoing, we're not producing enough. But I will highlight it's diesel that we need to be really worried about. Diesel stocks are at near record lows. We just haven't built over the summer. And that's what we tend to use in the winter if it does get very, very cold. And I think that's a much bigger concern for the administration right now. So we are expecting potentially some form of intervention by the administration, maybe saying you have to hold X amount of diesel stocks in the New York Harbor before you can export from Pad 3. Amrita, I've got about 40 seconds on the clock. I want to squeeze this in. We've been talking about this now for the best part of, what, eight months? Call it nine months, close to. Amrita, have you seen any effort, either from Europe or the United States, to build out refining capacity in a material way? No, quite the opposite. And it's a great question because, you know, if anything, Europe is talking about windfall taxes on refining. Um, and this is going to be the biggest bottleneck. The next year, we have a few Middle Eastern refineries starting up. But after that, after 2025, we just don't have enough refining capacity to meet all demand. And that right there is the problem. I'm really saying thank you, Director of Research at Energy Aspects. Thank you. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Lisa Hornby. If you get me one, I will do it. Is standing by the head of U.S. multi-sector fixed income at Schroeder's. Lisa, the Federal Reserve on Wednesday, all this chat about a step down. What are you and the team thinking about when you go into this November meeting? Well, you know... I don't see any reason for them to commit to downshifting on Wednesday. Um, I think that they will let us know that they're considering it. Uh, but we have, as you said, John, two CPI prints between now 
or between Wednesday and the December meeting. So what's the point in saying, here's what we're going to do. It's time to downshift. I think they're going to say, hey, look, if we see inflation moderating to some degree, we'll, we'll, we're open to it. We realize we've hiked a lot. It's going to take some time for this policy, these t- this tighter policy to actually have an effect. Um, but as you said, they've the central banks have been wrong before and they've they've said they're going to back off a bit and then they end up having to kind of go full throttle. So I just don't see why they pre-commit quite yet. They don't have much to point to in the way of inflation moderating here. In the meantime, people are looking long term and they're trying to get a better sense of long term since short term is so difficult to project. And Brian Weinstein of Morgan Stanley earlier this morning saying that he likes long dated treasuries because regardless of what they're going to do, it's going to slow growth and slow inflation over the longer term to make 4% yield on a 10 year treasury attractive. Do you agree? I think there, yeah, I think there's a lot of merit to that. I think it depends on your time horizon. If you're a long-term investor now, certainly, will you have a better entry point tactically between now and the next six months? Probably. Um, but again, it depends on your your time horizon on this. Nice feature over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal. I think they had about five or six investors being interviewed about 2023 and the opportunities. This jumped out from Rick Reader, Bramo. He said, I'm more excited going into 2023 than I've been in a really long time. You hear that a lot from the fixed income team, Mm -hmm. don't you? Yeah, a lot. You hear that a lot. I really do. Okay. I hear that also because I lived through the era of people railing against zero rates, complaining. We're not getting anything. This is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. Now they're getting 9% average yields on things that actually look better because these companies have preserved cash. For those people who've been sitting in cash complaining about low rates, I haven't heard enough from them (laughs) about saying, yes, we're going to take some opportunities here. Elisa... Does that resonate with you, what Rick Reader said over the weekend? I'm more excited going into 2023 than I've been in a really long time. It absolutely does. I mean, that was basically the title of our market paper as well. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's to, to Lisa's point, you don't even need to go to high yield to get interesting yields. I mean, HSBC came with a bond deal last week, seven north of 7%. It's a four-year piece of paper. I mean, I think you're going to be paid. You're going to be well compensated for that again. Time horizon matters, but over the next four years, 28% return, I think that that's going to I think that's going to be a good investment. And you're just sticking in the investment grade market there. Lisa, how has business changed then? Can you walk us through that just over the last six months? Do you get the sense that people see the world the way you see the world in fixed income going into next year? There's more interest from people that would typically be allocated to equities or somewhere else? Yeah, I absolutely do. So I, I've been to a few, presented at a few conferences, and the interest in fixed income now is is much much higher. It's 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 palpable. People are excited about it. I think there's still a little bit of nerves, right? It feels a bit like catching a falling knife here, and so there's a there's a bit of a we want to allocate, but not quite yet. So I do feel like there's the there's the risk, and we've had this a couple of times this year where you get a bit of a rally, and then all of a sudden you get. A, a lurch, but even tighter because everybody realized, oh, thinks, oh, this is it. We passed the peak. We need to get in. And then it's been in the past the last year, it's been kind of false starts. Um, but I do think that that could be the template. You know, everybody is sort of waiting, sitting on their hands a bit, but they want to get invested, uh, but they're not, we're not quite there yet. So when we do, it could be fairly sharp. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of interest. I mean, when you compare fixed income to private markets, when you compare them to other public markets, I mean, fixed income has corrected a lot. I mean, it's, yeah, my favorite stat right now is uh, it's credit of Deutsche Bank, uh, but 
they basically have the Treasury index going back to 1788, and I believe this was the, the worst return since that period. Uh, so it just gives you some context for, we use the word unprecedented a lot in, in markets, but I think that's, that's truly unprecedented. Truly is. Lisa, thank you. Lisa Hornby there. Thank you. Ashradis, thank you very much. Greg Valier joins us now, Chief U.S. Policy Strategist at HF Investments. Greg, let's talk about energy, and that's been a big problem for this White House through this year. How is that playing in the midterms, the lack of a coherent energy strategy in the minds of so many people, Greg? I think it's playing really poorly. A great editorial in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was this morning, all the days start to blur. But talking about how dysfunctional this energy policy has been, I mean, Joe Biden is complaining about prices, but in reality, one of the reasons prices have gone up is because of his policies. Wait, can you elaborate on that, Greg? Because a lot of people think that his policies have been to unleash the SPR on the energy market, on the gasoline market, and that's brought down prices. What's the other side of the story? Well, the other side, Lisa, I think is how adversarial the White House has been starting within days of his inauguration when he killed the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, and then he's, he's gone from there, you know, really beating on fossil fuels, uh, coal, oil, uh, natural gas, and saying that uh, renewables is the way to go. I think renewables will play a major role for the rest of this decade. But right now, we need fossil fuels. Okay, so that's the case. Uh, at the same time, perhaps it's just the coherence in the message from this administration because they have actually confirmed that kind of view and said we need to encourage investment by some of the oil majors. Where could they be more consistent, right? What could be the message that could read through better that perhaps the Republicans are giving in your view? Well, I'd say probably regulatory policy, which has been quite restrictive. I think the industry uh, senses uh, a regulatory policy that's quite harsh, and therefore the industry is not doing much drilling or refining or shipping. Craig, if they can keep hold of the House and the Senate, what do you think this administration would like to do next? What do you expect to happen? Yeah, it's a good question, John. I, I think that because both sides are so bitterly divided, we have to lower our expectations for much. But I do think there's a chance they'll talk about immigration. Everywhere I go around the country, I hear the same refrain. We don't have enough cooks, waiters, waitresses, carpenters, whatever. And, and I do think more legal immigration is really uh, quite would be very beneficial. And I think both parties might agree on that. Greg, in the meantime, a lot of people are thinking that it's going to be gridlock and markets like gridlock. Yeah. And that seems to be the feeling right now. Is this going to be gridlock that's good for markets? Yeah, I think so. I think that there's not going to be anything radical, certainly nothing new on taxes, capital gains, the estate tax, the top rate. I think all of that stuff gets frozen for at least two more years. And that kind of predictability is a good story for the markets. What does that do to our alliances with other nations? And I think about some of the potential for restricted exports of uh, natural gas, of diesel, especially in light of some of the up uh, in, in price that we've seen recently in, in both of those categories. How much could that really create some longstanding fissures in classic alliances? 
it, it, it could. You can't rule it out. I, I would say, though, the biggest fear that I would have in terms of fissures is Ukraine policy. Uh, we're starting to see a lot of ads on TV in the last couple of weeks uh, talking about why are we spending this kind of money on Ukraine? We got problems right here. If there starts to become a, a, a perception in Western Europe and in Russia and Ukraine that the U.S. is losing some of its resolve on Ukraine, that's a big deal and a very negative story. Well, Greg, the prospect of any kind of trade restrictions on energy project products out of the United States would only exacerbate that in places like Europe. Yeah. Greg, that trial balloon has been floated a few times this year. They haven't gone forward with it. Is that what's holding them back? I guess it is. What would push them forward? What would make them go through with a policy like that? Well, I think what would push them forward would be a sense of the U.S. economy is starting to weaken sharply. I don't see it yet. The data looks pretty good. But if at some point next year the U.S. economy is starting to slump, then I think there will be a serious debate over how much we're doing for Ukraine. And the Republicans may lead a fight to give them a lot less. Hey, Greg, thank you. Appreciate your time. Greg, no doubt we'll catch up before next week. Greg Vallier there of AGF Investments. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.